my humble opinion, the large reactors, there is a limited market or customer base. There is, I think, a far greater market out there for small modular, for micros and others waiting to be realized. Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about the future of nuclear energy and how it could follow two tracks, very big and much smaller. It goes without saying that if you care about abundant baseload carbon-free energy, nuclear is the way to go. Yet the industry has struggled to get new projects off the ground. About 10 years ago, we were well on our way towards a nuclear renaissance. Then in 2011, the industry faced a huge setback from Japan. <laughs> Almost as damaging, after Fukushima, nearly every American nuclear power project was canceled, 14 units. Today, there's just one project moving forward, the Vogel 3 and 4 units in Georgia. You've heard me mention countless times, my office is filled with a number of folks who worked on a failed project, the VC Summer 2 and 3 expansion in South Carolina. My guess believes if they can just get Vogel complete early next decade, the next large nuclear projects will go much more smoothly. After all, the last new units were built 30 years ago. Turns out skipping a generation can make you a little rusty. That brings us to the second solution. Why not go small? We've discussed small modular reactors in the past. They include all the benefits of a conventional nuclear reactor at a lower cost, and they are next-gen, meaning they are more efficient and considered walk-away safe. My guess says rather than endure the agony of huge nuclear plant projects, just focus on getting some SMR projects built. The goal here is to embrace the benefits of nuclear, not bust the bank, by working to jumpstart our conventional plants and focusing on newer, more agile designs. Designs. The nuclear program in this country could yield much more reliable, carbon-free energy for everyone. My guest this week is Ed McGinnis, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Nuclear Energy at the Department of Energy. The office is responsible for advancing all forms of nuclear technology, from large-scale reactors to SMRs, and also waste management, which we'll also discuss. From our interview, it is clear the department plays a key role for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or NRC. Ed was also Vice Chairman and U.S. Representative on the Generation 4 International Forum which is a world body working to advance the next generation of nuclear reactors. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ed McGinnis. We are here with Ed McGinnis, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Nuclear Energy at DOE. And Ed, one of the exciting new technologies is small modular reactors. They've been getting a lot of attention for their potential to hopefully bring the benefits of nuclear on a smaller scale. And a lot of applications are being discussed, greenfield power, repowering existing nuclear plants. How do you see SMRs being used? What do you think their, their place is in the mix? Thank you very much, Jay. The U.S. small modular 
modular reactors that are being developed by literally dozens of different companies in the United States are at the forefront of what we are calling the next generation of U.S. advanced reactors. And they bring an incredibly exciting value proposition to an already hugely important, frankly, vital aspect of our electricity generating sector that is coming from the current fleet of nuclear reactors, which are large reactors. But these large reactors are of a different generation, highly capable again. But the issue is that there is continuing to be a very, very strong demand for clean, reliable electricity that is available 24-7. Rain, sleet, or snow, it's available. And nuclear energy is still unique as that source. There's no other electricity generating asset that can provide baseloaded electricity for 18 to 24 months without refueling. However, what we have now are large reactors. These companies developing these small modular reactors are responding, in my view, to a strong, strong desire for continued clean electricity, but in different size, different application, different capital requirements. We are also supporting small modular reactors because of the changing electricity market. The electricity market now has a tremendous success from wind and solar, natural gas, and storage. There are a lot of exciting things in the electricity market and to the benefit of the ratepayers and consumers. But one thing that has happened in the market is the electricity market has become more distributed. You don't have as much concentration of single large generating electricity assets. You have a much more distributed, much more flexible electricity grid. And that is what nuclear energy is honing in on. And that is bringing in the small modular reactors. That way utilities don't have to bet the farm by deciding to go with a large nuclear reactor that may cost six to eight billion per unit. And many utilities like to go with a pair of two. So $16 billion project that may take five to 10 years to even get to the point of generating electricity and generating revenue, many utilities just cannot do that. These small modular reactors are very exciting. We have at least one company setting its sights on 2026 to have the first advanced SMR. We also have very small modular reactors, often referred to as micro-reactors, and we believe that we may have our first micro-reactors as early as 2022 or 2023. So versatile, they could be paired up with wind and solar plants, battery storage integrated into the system, water desalinization, hydrogen production, and also bringing these small modular reactors to locations that large reactors can never dream of having access to. Yeah, it really looks like SMRs are going to see their day. And the company in Idaho is New Scale, right? New Scale is the design company. They're going through the NRC right now for that design approval. And they're arguably through the most challenging part. The customer is UANS. The beauty of small modular reactors is small can be large. You can scale up. The one at Idaho is planned to be 12 individual 60 megawatt electric modules, each one 
independently operable and you have 12 bays within a base plant. It's a great point where if you have 12 of them as opposed to say two units or a unit, you can bring one of those 12 down. You're not bringing the whole plant down as opposed to scheduled outages. Exactly. And you talked about New Scale and their regulatory process, but what if anything can DOE do to help SMRs enter the market without the burden, I guess, of the conventional nuclear plants they face? Is there anything that would make that part easier for them? Well, first of all, what we can do is continue to partner with the NRC, providing them as much expertise and resources and support as possible while recognizing the importance of their independent nature. And we're doing that. And with the advanced SMRs, you can essentially break it down into two types that would go through the NRC. One are light water reactor, and that is basically based on the current light water reactor regulatory guidelines. And the new scale plant is going through those light water reactor guidelines. But we also have non-light water advanced reactors. The NRC has not received an application from an entity or a company to have a license safety review for an advanced non-light water small modular reactor as of yet. We have worked with the NRC, we've developed draft guidelines, and the NRC has taken that largely and incorporated it into their guidelines now. So I think they're in a good position. And I mentioned micro-reactors. The micro-reactors are non-light water, and the core life is much longer. That will be a very important opportunity for the NRC to show they're ready for prime time, which we believe they are, to efficiently and effectively process a license of advanced non-light water reactors as well as light water reactors. But they understand, they get it, they want to be as efficient as possible while maintaining their top, top commitment for safety. And we also are partnering with companies that are going through the licensing process, case in point, New Scale. And the last point on this, New Scale has already gone through the Class 1E exemption that requires light water reactors to have electric pumps and motors as part of their primary safety system in the event of a loss of coolant or power where they have to come to a steady state of shutdown. Well, for these new advanced reactor designs, including New Scale, there what we call walk-away safe. This design, if it had a complete loss of power, that reactor would shut down on its own, even without any electric pumps or motors or without any human intervention. That is game-changing. If you don't have a core melt scenario, then you're at a point of citing these reactors proximity-wise to the users. Even a profile looks different for most of these advanced reactors. These are built in ground. You won't see the traditional large cooling towers. The point is versatile, scalable, not having to bet the whole farm of the company in order to get the financing and get through a very, very lengthy construction project getting into a serial production mode and being able to bring an entirely new generation of reactors to the market, unlike we've seen today. Moving from micro reactors to something a little bit bigger, the one reactor that seems to be getting a lot of focus is the AP-1000. It was a pre-approved design, but facilities here in the United States, they've had trouble getting them built. What do you think has been the biggest challenge for those projects, Ed? Well, first of all, the AP-1000, let me be clear, we're very proud of that design, just like we are with the GEH ESBWR design. We've invested quite a bit of taxpayer funds in partnering with them through a program called MP2010, and it has resulted in what we have now is two American designs certified by the top nuclear regulatory entity in the world in the USNRC, two designs that are easily, arguably, the most advanced 
passively safe, large commercial available reactors in the world. Now, with the AB1000, with the challenges they've had, I would suggest it's from the construction side. But the learning curve that is being realized now is tremendous. It's important to remember the AP1000, the two that are being constructed in Georgia now in Vogel, those aren't the only two that are being built or have been built. There are four others in China that have now been completed in construction. Three of the four are operating. All four started up. You have two that are marching towards completion now. In the United States, it's important to remember that before Vogel and also for Summer, the other project, they were building for the first time in over 30 years from start to finish a new large reactor. That meant bringing together a huge workforce, the necessary manufacturing supply chain that we hadn't put in place for over 30 years. So this first build, yes, there's pain, but it's going to be hugely valuable. We will have shown that we can build the world's largest advanced, passively safe commercial reactors, and we're doing it now. And once we've completed that in Georgia, we will have so much with regards to lessons learned. And we're going to emphatically show that we're ready to export to other countries who are interested, whether it's India, whether it's Poland, or other countries. But we absolutely need to go beyond large, and we need to develop scalable, small, modular, more financeable, more affordable, more distributed, and more versatile to complement. And I see the disruption coming in from small, modular, and micro reactors akin to the type of disruption we've seen with oil and gas, hydraulic fracturing, and directional drilling, the type of disruption we've seen with SpaceX and reusable rockets, and even smartphones. We are on the cusp, in my humble opinion, in the U.S nuclear sector of uh, bringing in an entirely new disruptive class of technologies. You just mentioned something about the supply chain and full disclosure, I'm a project manager, we're in the transmission group, but I've got a ton of people who came from the VC Summer Project. One of the things they came back to me with was this issue of the supply chain. This was a big challenge for them at VC Summer was these folks say that vendors who can provide the materials and services for a new construction is a lot different from maintenance of the existing fleet. Is there anything DOE can do to help play a role in bringing on a new generation of suppliers? Because that's hard when you only have one project out there and you haven't built a nuclear plant in 30 years to stand up all the vendors that are needed for all that specialized equipment. What are your thoughts on that? There are multiple ways of going at this. One is the human capital supply chain, and we can't forget that because the labor force and the trades that are required as part of the integrated element of a manufacturing supply chain is vital. That's why we invest tens of millions of dollars every year to various universities and nuclear engineering programs around the country, and we're proud of that. We're very much focused on working with manufacturers on bringing in the next generation of advanced manufacturing. We recognize that we have lost a lot in the manufacturing supply chain, but it's not about just replicating or duplicating previous manufacturing techniques. We live in a very, very dynamic, fast-changing electricity sector in nuclear energy has to be keeping pace and staying in the front. This is not just trying to reestablish what we've done in the past. We need to stay in the front in a very innovative way. In fact, we do it better than anybody else in the world, in my view, still in the nuclear space, and that is innovation and leapfrogging through major disruptive activities, including advanced manufacturing. Let me give you an example. We've embarked on, just this past year, quite an audacious effort with Oak Ridge National Lab to prototype a micro-reactor that has been manufactured 
manufactured through advanced manufacturing and additive manufacturing processes, including 3D printing of the entire nuclear core, <laughs> including ISA-LEU metal fuel. Mm. That's what the labs do best, doing things that no one's been able to do. This is not a sandbox. We're looking to support this to go in the market. We are working closely with the NRC to make sure that we can support an eventual NRC license. And once we do that, my experts are telling me it is certainly within the realm of possibility to do 3D printing of larger components, maybe up to about 160 megawatts. Ed, in doing research for this interview, it says you were the U.S. representative to the world for the general generation four program. And basically we are in what we call generation three plus. And I think you've touched on a lot of different nuclear technologies out there, but what would be the greatest benefit of a generation four reactor? Well, generation four reactors is synonymous in my view with what we're calling the next generation of advanced reactors that various U.S. companies are developing now. I did serve as vice chair for generation four international forum. They focus on non-light water advanced reactors, six different designs. The ones that we're focused on, U.S. companies are molten salt reactors, sodium cool fast reactors, high temperature gas reactors, among others. They have tremendous potential, not just for electricity generation, but also for non-electric application and hybrids, pairing up with wind, solar, integrating battery storage, but also performing petrochemical water to sell and other roles. I recently went out to West Texas to look at a small modular high temperature gas reactor to process water. Mm-hmm. And then you have petrochemical processing and hydrogen production. These advanced reactors bring an entirely new suite of applications and choice. I was thinking about it when you were talking about our existing fleet of reactors. I think the average age, I've got to be close to about 40 years old. That's hugely important. Right now, the average age of our fleet of 98 units is 39 years old. All have received a 40-year license at the beginning. The vast majority, something like 84 out of the 98, have now received 20-year license extensions. And in fact, we now have six units where license applications have been made to 80 years. And we understand at least two more have been announced. These are incredible assets. These are generational assets. When you think about how important these nuclear reactors are, first of all, look at where they're located. With the 10-mile emergency planning zone, they're generally in less populated areas. 600 or so skilled, higher than average paid jobs, they become anchors to these communities. Mm -hmm. So these reactors are aging, but they have really served just an amazing role for our nation. Unsung heroes, in my humble opinion. But they are getting older, and we need to move out with haste to support the next generation of reactors before our fleet ages out. And we have a particularly challenging problem because about half the reactors are in what's called competitive wholesale markets. There are a number of plants that have had to close prematurely because they have not been able to recover the sufficient cost for the electricity sold in the wholesale market, vice of subsidized wind, subsidized solar, and historically low natural gas prices. The market is not allowing for full and fair and attribute compensation for the unique aspects of these nuclear plants that are key, not only from a carbon-free environmental, but from a resiliency and 
bankers to communities. So we're also working hard, and we have called on FERC to take action to help ensure these nuclear reactors get fairly compensated. Pennsylvania is playing out right now, and it's rather sad. One is only 31 years old with a 60-year license. That community was banking on generational jobs, contribution, anchored to the community for another 28 years, and now it's slated to be closed next year. That's a tragedy. That's a good point. I think I heard about Vermont Yankee, right? Wasn't that closed prematurely? Right. Vermont Yankee was closed prematurely. Now, look at the cost of electricity has gone up. Look at the emissions generated. When these plants go down, there's a strong correlation with that and increased carbon emission. When those three nuclear power plants in Pennsylvania identified to close, including TMI, it will have wiped out all of the wind and solar contributions for non-carbon emitting for well over 20 years. And it seems to me that that's a real public perception issue. And you talk about the average age of the plants being 39. I'm 39. At one point, when I lived back in Austin, I was executive director of a carbon capture association. Having spent time in the coal sector, even carbon capture, I can tell you some environmental groups were not as friendly as others. Some even supported carbon capture. But it goes without saying that environmental groups seem to hold a lot of sway over public opinion. What I'm curious about is to what extent does DOE engage with the environmental community, particularly the pro-nuclear groups, to help get the word out on the benefits, particularly nuclear safety record and the carbon issue? Have you at any point aligned with the supportive groups? Because it seems to me that they're pretty good with messaging. First of all, we have an all of the above approach to supporting all sources of electricity while supporting carbon reduction. And we have led the world in the past 10 years in carbon reduction while achieving historic growth in our economy. We can do both. I've worked in government almost 28 years. And what I have seen in general is support for nuclear is strongly bipartisan. And one reason is because of the role nuclear is recognized and playing for the environment. But when you start looking at the forecast for electricity demand growth around the world and in the U.S., we will not be able to reduce not even substantially carbon and concerns over climate change without nuclear. If we continue to see the premature shutdown of these nuclear power plants, and if we don't bring in the next generation in the 2020s, we're going to see a precipitous decline of our nuclear fleet. And just remember, 60% of our entire nation's carbon-free generation for electricity is coming from these 98 reactor units. Mm -hmm. Just 98. So yeah. the, the stakes are enormous, and I think a large number of very environmentally conscious entities recognize that. I certainly see more environmentally dedicated groups recognizing that nuclear needs to be a part of the mix than not. I've lived and breathed experiencing the support from both sides. Certainly this administration, among others, they want clean air, clean water. They want beautiful environment that we can all enjoy. We all want that, but we also want a healthy, prosperous economy. And we don't think it's an either or choice. We think we can realize both. And we've demonstrated that in the past 10 years with the U.S. leading the world in carbon reduction. This is another challenging issue, environmental related. What do you think will help us break through the impasse on the waste storage issue? 
Well, first of all, stop kicking a can and support the administration's funding request to restart the license process for disposition pathway. We need to comply with the law. The law says we're obligated to take the spent fuel from our nation's nuclear power plants since we've collected fees over the years, and we have an obligation, and we should be doing that. We've also submitted a request for funds to initiate work on the idea of robust interim storage, but both of those requires congressional appropriations and support. Is Yucca Mountain still in the conversation? I'm not sure where we are with that. The law is clear. The law says Yucca Mountain and the Department of Energy is requesting funds to resume the licensing process, the safety evaluation that the NRC would need to be done before anything progressed beyond that. That's why we're trying to get back to business and also work concurrently on interim storage. I am optimistic we can find a pathway forward, and I believe we will. And let me say one other thing. The next generation of advanced reactors coming in, a number of these designs bring a substantial benefit where it generates much less high-level waste. They have a much longer core life and they utilize much more of the energy value and they burn up much of that fuel, much more than what the reactors do based on the 18 to 24 month refueling cycle now where they're only utilizing about 4% of the entire value. But some of these advanced reactors would generate far less high-level waste that would have to ultimately go into a repository. And then on top of that, we continue at the Department of Energy to demonstrate very thoughtful recycling capabilities and reusing that and ultimately reducing the amount of high-level waste that would have to go into a repository. The Chinese, you said, have built four AP-1000 units. Is there anything we can learn from the Chinese about building nuclear plants? Well, let's be clear. They've learned from us because we've been the leader. We've been the pioneers. And the AP-1000 still is an American-designed reactor. And they purchased it, and it was built using great American talent. But I would say the fact that four that have been successfully built and operated in China reinforces how important and how well positioned the AP-1000 and other advanced U.S. reactors are for global export. Make no mistake, when you have more than one reactor, first of a kind being built, that's an added benefit. You have a lot of lessons learned that you can derive when you have multiple projects going on. So it certainly has served us well to have the AP-1000 being built concurrently in the U.S. and in another country and reinforces this great value proposition for other countries interested in availing themselves to what is really the most advanced, passively safe large commercial reactor, not only available, but operating now in the world. All right. Ed McGinnis, Department of Energy, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure, Jay. Thank you. That was Ed McGinnis, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Nuclear Energy at the Department of Energy. Ed also told me that there is a micro-reactor design out there that's about to be submitted to the NRC that could have a 10-year core life. Reactors today usually have to be served every two years or so. And in addition to the SMR project in Idaho, Tennessee Valley Authority is planning its own SMR project along the Clinch River near Oak Ridge National Lab. I want to thank 
thank Ed for his time. You can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram at Host Energy. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 63. Be sure to join us next week when we talk to a former guest who's starting a new venture to address the huge issue in North Dakota's Bakken Shale. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time. Thank you.